Hello, I'm Charles Clausen, your host of the Ampex Podcast, a show where we engage in conversations with entrepreneurs and innovators whose wild ideas and exponential thinking are reshaping the universe where we live, play, and work. I believe these powerful conversations will inspire you to pursue your dreams. Welcome to the Ampex Podcast. I'm Charles Clausen, and today we have a very special uh, guest, Kate Moreland. Kate is a entrepreneur, a podcaster, a creator, a connector. She spent nine years with the Iowa City Area Development Organization and her final years as president. Um, she has a podcast um, with um, her friend, uh, Tender Her Wild which they get into all kinds of interesting conversations, uh, she and Betsy Rippentrop. Um, she's a consultant for Better Together 2030, which I'd love to, to learn more about, Kate, yeah. but we'll get right into it. So what sparked your curiosity as a entrepreneur and an innovator at, at the earliest age you can remember? Oh, that's a good question. If I'm being honest, it's probably the... Uh lemonade stand I had on Main Street in front of my dad's office. Um, but as I, as I entered school and went on to college, um, I, I have to be honest, I probably really took a very traditional path. And um, I've been trying to find my way back to my own ideas, my own creativity, uh, certainly um, in the last several years. So, um, so yeah, I, I think I've, I've been an idea person. I've been a creative at different times in my life, but I'm, you know, at this stage in my life, I'm really putting all that together. Well, it's, it's interesting. I noticed in your, um, your bio on LinkedIn that at one point you got a law degree, which I did. <laughs> lawyers in general are risk adverse. I know. I've been, I've been trying to unwind that. For, I, I practiced law for about 10 years. I was a prosecutor and then moved into the area of high-conflict divorce work. So I chose very stressful areas of the law and burned out pretty quickly and decided to go a different, you know, a different way uh, after a decade. And, but I, I feel like what I am truly still is an advocate. I'm an advocate for a lot of things. Um, I have advocacy skills, I think, that I build up over time. And so I still use my law degree just in a very unique way, I think. Well, how do you take those um, advocacy skills, Kate, and help create uh, innovative ecosystems? I know as the um, president of the Iowa City Area Development Corporation, you were trying to get community to work with university, to work with businesses. and um, you know, how did you find that experience? And especially we're a university town, mm -hmm. University of Iowa. So there's a lot of creators, but creators by definition don't necessarily collaborate. So you might talk to us a little bit about, um, you know, your advocacy skills and how you use that to try to open up and, and get more collaboration going on. Yeah. <clears throat> well, I, I think so much of that comes down to people and building relationships and building trust. And that takes time. And I'm not always the most patient person. So um, I had to balance a lot of that. And 
you know, I've learned over the years that, you know, starting small with small projects, build the trust, and then you, you grow into bigger things. And I think we did, I, I'm, I'm really um, proud of the success we did have. We, we had an ed tech opportunity with a federal grant, and we brought the university in so that it became a very collaborative project um, for our community and for uh, the state, actually. And so that was one of those opportunities that, you know, when you say we have this large federal grant, where I think a lot of people thought, oh, they'll never get it. Um, they supported it, but we ended up getting it. And then we said, all right, you're at the table with us. And um, we really, we really moved the needle on, you know, showcasing what's happening in educational technology. And really, Iowa City is such an area of uh, educational foundations. I mean, we have, we're home of ACT. You know, we, that was a startup out of the university. Pearson, the College Board. I mean, we've got a lot of those foundational ed tech companies. And then we've got some new rising stars in um, higher, uh, higher learning technologies and Paradec that was uh, uh, merged in with another uh, company out in California. So some of those um, opportunities, I think, it's, it's honoring the past, but also trying to look to the future and seeing how we can how we could come together. And so that's one of the areas I think that I was most proud of in our, our area of work where we really did collaborate well with the university. There's always more to do, but it starts small. I think you have to think about what's the small first steps you can take. Excellent. So I know you and I are both involved with Ed Morrison and mm -hmm. strategic doing. You're a fellow and I'm working on that distinction. Yeah. But the, um, you're also familiar with the Kauffman Foundation supporting entrepreneurs and specifically Andy Stoll and the work he's doing with innovation ecosystems. Yeah. And, um, you know, universities. Um, my dad was a professor at the University of Iowa. He was associate dean of the business school forever. So I kind of grew up in the academic environment. At least I heard discussions about it over dinner. Yeah. So I... And I've been involved with the university on the board of the University of Iowa Research Foundation, which gets involved with tech transfer as well as the International Institute and the Papa John Entrepreneurial Center. And what frustrates me a bit is the whole academic paradigm. I know a hundred and some years ago when the, um, the, the cultures began to form, you know, in the early days, it was try to protect researchers from politicians and others' influence and let them go out and do basic discovery and research and create, you know, new ideas and new ways of thinking. Um, what concerns me a lot today, after spending a week in um, California with Peter DeMondis and Andrew Ng and um, Lucky Palmer and all of these AI innovators and creators that are changing the world is the speed at which it's changing. You know, ChatGPT just went from 1.7 billion parameters to a trillion parameters, parameters in version 4.0. So it's like a huge neural network. Yeah. And the rate of innovation and creativity is it's exploding. We just moved from the industrial revolution into the age of uh, AI. And I've always been a disruptor and I've, I've 
recently learned to take that out of my vocabulary. Instead of saying I'm a disruptor, I'm using the word a transformer. Oh, I like that. Because these technologies, cater, as you know, are going to transform our society and how we live, work, and play as humans in every single aspect. But it's here today. So how do we take academics who are risk-adverse by nature when things are changing so fast and they don't have five or 10 or 15 years to do basic research? I mean, Moderna in a matter of weeks came up after running billions of scenario um, combinations on viruses with a um, COVID vaccine. So these are complicated relationships. And when you partner with computers to help solve these problems, you can look at nuances and billions of combinations that many faculty couldn't do in a lifetime. Yeah. So how do we change the mindset in academics to increase collaboration across universities, across um, colleges within the university and with businesses. So I'd like to spend a little time just talking about collaborative collaborations and creative networks. Yeah. Well, I think part of the narrative is we, there's a lot of fear around these new technologies and what they're going to mean for the classroom. What are they going to mean for education? And I, I think knowledge is power. So I think helping uh, professors and colleges and, and, and people understand. Um, I had a young college student sit down with me and give me a tutorial on ChatGTP. She taught me how to use it. And I appreciated hearing from her at 19 years old, what this means for her and, and how she sees how she's going to use it. So I think we actually have to look to our young people. I think professors need to engage young people around these conversations. It's not going anywhere. I heard it, the analogy of it being like a, the invention of a pencil. It just becomes another tool and, or a calculator. And we have to figure out when and how to allow the usage, perhaps, but also we, we can't just suggests that we're going to ban it and say it's it's not allowed. So I think I think we're in a in a tricky time but having these conversations for young people are really important. They can't go to school for 4 years in college not learning how to appropriately use something like this and then go out into the work world uh, if they don't have those skills because they're going to exist when they when they enter the workforce. So we have to figure out a way to bridge and use these new tools responsibly and, and have conversations about what they mean for human beings and, and how uh, we have to still operate in systems, um, even with these new technologies that are going to honor people and uh, human beings and relationships. Uh, because my biggest fear is, you know, if we don't educate around that, then, then they are misused or they're, they're, they're not used with a lens of, you know, some critique and some understanding. Um, so I, I don't think we can ignore them. And I think we just have to educate our professors and our, our communities about what it is. And, and, and I think kids, students, young students can help do that. They, they get it like that. Well, you're absolutely right, Kate. And I think there's, I think the young people are already immersing themselves in this. I mean, Chet, GPT in the first week 
five days had a million users and in the first two months there's over a hundred million users. So it's the most rapidly adopted technology and it's the chat GPT is just a bot. It's an interface between that and open AI. If you have an um, much more complicated data sets, you can write algorithms that'll feed your data, whether you're a, uh, a researcher like Moderna or someone else, and feed that into the, these machine learning models. And it's amazing what they come back with. But I would, I would urge every faculty member, every adult, and every student, regardless of what they do, to learn how to transform yourself and upgrade your skill set because it's it's literally I'm 10 times more efficient on on every front on it, every it is front. It's quite amazing. It, the first time I used it, I you're just blown away. It's hard to explain until you use it, which is why I think it is important for people to to learn how to use the tool so they really understand what it is. Yeah, I mean, it's an amazing tool and I had the 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 honor of listening to Sal Khan of the, the Khan Academy talk last week about what he's doing in curriculum content. And it's amazing. So I think, you know, what I encourage academics to do is to, and God bless them, they're also buried in all kinds of administrative bureaucratic paperwork to hire someone, you know, to change a curriculum. It's all just arduous and tedious, and AI can help standardize a lot of those yeah. tasks and take it off their plate. But it, at some point, they need to start reimagining what education looks like in five or 10 years. Um, one of our fellow classmates in Abundance 360, his moonshot was to um, build a 3D printer to build rockets to launch into space. And last Friday, he had his first launch, his rocket. They built that in a 3D printer and it went into orbit. Wow. So how cool is that? And I think if you look at world populations, birth rates are going down all over the world. Mm -hmm. There is a lot of angst and frustration about the, what the future brings, what the environment will be like. But with these exponential technologies, every problem that mankind has today will be solved in the next 25 years. And we'll fix those things. Um, I mean, like any technology, there's a light and a dark side. So, mm -hmm. you know, you worry about what happens if the technology gets used for the wrong purposes in the wrong hands. But, you know, if we're aware of that, the cat's out of the hat. I mean, there's yeah. no way it's going back. Right. That is the challenge. Things are moving so quickly. It makes the ability to adapt and understand, like, like to your point, the usership and the expansion of GPT just in the last month has been beyond comprehension. So um, I think sometimes the speed of which things are moving you know, human beings, there's a fear that comes in because things are moving so fast. It's, it's, so that's a challenge that, um, so we, that we have to overcome because it's not going to slow down. I mean, it's, it's a real fear. So, you know, what happens when humans only need to work one day a week? What do you do with will the rest of it? I know. Will I be around for that? I don't know. Yeah. Well, you know, Ray Kurzweil 
talks about singularity, which is when computers get to the same level as humans. But 2029, and he's got about an 86% accuracy rate, accuracy rate in his projection over the last 40 years. But imagine this. In 2045, you'll have a, a human computer interface that will leverage your knowledge, your wisdom, and everything you have access to by a million times. And you'll be able to think something and it'll actually teleport in some form those answers into your brain. So if, if the expansion of human capacity and it's humans will do different things. Um, so the, the, the limit is only what you can right. envision. Oh, yeah, that's, that's a and so, you know, with an environment that. like that. Well, let me tell you another story. So I met a doctor, Dr. Tim Nelson. He's, at, he's up in Rochester at Mayo. And uh, the Warnick family came to him. He's, he's not only a cardiac surgeon, but he's got a PhD in biology and stem cells. So the, the, founder, the owners of Ashley Furniture came to him and said, our daughter's got a congenitive heart defect. Um, if you'll commit to spending your life or whatever time it takes to solve this problem, we'll fund you with up to $35 million. Wow. And I like to share this technology because he's starting phase two clinical trials with 50 children. And basically what he does is scrapes some cells off your skin, puts it in a, uh, a glass beaker, and over seven months they grow your individual heart stem cells. Then they, they inject those into the heart, and over the next three or four months, that abnormal heart rebuilds itself with its own stem cells. And it, it's, he's focused on, on children. But when you imagine what's possible, um, rebuilding, regenerating kidneys or pancreases or livers, um, from your own cells. So regenerative medicine, in the next, if you live 10 years, you'll be able to live to 130 to 150 with the way regenerative medicine is going. So they're, they're curing d diseases. They're using your own system to rebuild organs. So it's pretty, well, for me, it's pretty exciting to think about, you know, I'm 150 years old, and I'm still going at the same speed I am now. Yeah. I love that story because it also highlights the critical piece of public-private partnerships. So when I think about academia, academia and how we're engaging them in solving these problems, um, it does take it. I mean, we're at a place where we need more funding for all of these research things. But it came down to someone's granddaughter or daughter, right? Yep. And so our connections as humans is often what drives where we put our focus. So I, that story is so fascinating to me because in the end, we are all connected as human beings. Um, and so it, it kind of goes to the idea of leveraging assets and connecting assets to be able to solve big problems, which is what happened there. You had the financial piece, the family, you know, desire to have this, this young girl cured and then the academic knowledge and research ability that came together. So 
Yeah, I mean, it's, it's beautiful. Dr. Nelson has also got a new model for collaborations. So he's accelerated the whole clinical process. He has 11 of the top pediatric hospitals in the country that are partnering with him on the clinical trials. So That's he great. gets them the stem cells and they incur all the costs to do, do the implants. It's basically they're in there um, doing an open heart procedure anyhow. So they inject these stem cells when they're in there. So he's got 11 of the top centers in Working addition to Mayo supporting it. So they, um, the anti-rejection drugs for someone that gets a heart plant transplant are 32,000 a month. So you're looking at almost 400,000 a year for 10 years. You know, that's $4 million. If you live 40 years, the cost is amazing. These, these clinical trials, it's, it's 100,000 per child. And I'm imagining once they get through it, that the cost for humans is going to be something less than that. Yeah. But just imagine if you could get your own stem cells to regenerate your heart. I mean, you could be six months old or you could be 60 years old and um, for the price of a car. Yeah. So um, it's, it's, it's pretty exciting. I mean, I can tell you endless stories like this of innovation that ha have to do with human health, but coming back to the ecosystems, um, I've been kind of on a, I don't know if terror is the right word, but um, NSF has these, this project. And right now they have 50 phase one grants for a million dollars for, to build this innovation ecosystem, regional innovation ecosystem. And they want, they want to encourage R&D and collaborations between academics and businesses and communities mm -hmm. in the flyover states. We just happen to be smack in the middle of the flyover states, but phase two is a five entities or organizations are going to get $160 million to support these innovation ecosystems. So I've been thinking about what's possible, but what I think NSF is trying to do is stimulate cooperation mm -hmm. and there's going to be billions of dollars coming out of Washington in the next two or three years for innovation. Um, the problem is you can't wait until these proposals come out to build these, comp these ecosystems of, let's say, Dr. Nelson, do you want to pull together 11 pediatric uh, right. heart institutes and you want to develop, I mean, the strategy and what you're going to do. You can't do that in two or three months. So my thought is, is to use strategic doing as a vehicle to bring academic and, and business leaders together to think about what the future looks like five, 10 years out, then if that's really what's here, or right now it's here with AI, so we don't even have yeah. to go that far, what's possible and reimagine what's possible. And it, it's gonna create um, a gold rush in innovation. I, I hope it does. Yeah, I think that is the goal. And I think the communities and educational institutions that leverage those partnerships and dollars are going to be light years ahead of those that don't. So when I think about the strategy for universities, 
um, to be relevant, like to your point, in the next 10 to 15 years, um, that's going to have to be part of their strategic plan is more partnerships because um, that's what keeps them viable. It's, it's what will keep them viable. Public funding continues to decline. Um, and there are so many, there's just so much knowledge in these institutions. Um, we have to in, support and encourage them to, to be part of solving the problems of today and tomorrow. And I, I, I think you can't, we can't do that in silos anymore. So, no, we certainly, we certainly can't. Yeah. So one of the, the dialogues uh, this past week around education was, I mean, you can go on to YouTube and see the very best and brightest on any topic. You can go to the Khan Academy and take a course on anything you want for next to nothing. Mm -hmm. So if you're a young person and you're looking at a hundred, dollars $200,000 bill to get an undergraduate degree and you can get the online training um, for a couple thousand bucks yeah. in half the time. Now, you don't have the human connection and you don't have the interaction, but at some point, that's only worth so much. Yeah, there's a tipping point. I think micro-credentialing and the, these learning in, in spurts, I mean, the other pace of change is going to require us to continue to learn in a way we haven't had to, our generation hasn't had to. This younger generation will have to learn and learn. It's continuous learning. And so it doesn't just happen in four years of college. It's, it's a lifetime to keep up with everything. So I do think the, these micro-credentialing, and, and we've seen it start with the software industry. You know, Google was hiring people without college degrees who were self-taught, you know, seven, eight, ten years ago. So they, they got ahead of that knowing that if you could self-teach, um, that was good enough for them. They didn't require, you know, a four-year degree. Um, we were at our... ICAD worked pretty hard, and Tom Banta, who I worked with there, worked hard to help our employers understand skills-based hiring. Um, Microsoft does primarily skills-based hiring. A lot of the large um, entities now are looking to, to do just that. And that is somewhat of a threat to maybe traditional education um, because you're not basing it all on degrees. and um, But... The honest truth is that jobs require certain skills, and you can get those skills in a variety of ways. You can show them in a variety of ways. And so um, I, I, think, I think we're going to enter an era where skills-based hiring is, just becomes the norm, and people will be getting those skills in different ways. Absolutely, and I think it's probably will accelerate because businesses, I mean, if you can pass a competency exam with the right skill sets, they don't really care anymore. I mean, Bill Gates never graduated, and there's so many uh, leading leaders of tech companies that never graduated because there was too many big problems to solve, and they needed to get on with it. So, right. you know, maybe Kate, the the credentialing of young and old will change the way academics think because. Iowa has approximately 30,000 students, but what if in three years, 10,000 decide not to come back because they can get what they need online faster um, and get credentialed and move on? 
I mean, that's, that's one side of the coin, getting credentialed. Right. The other side is this antiquated system of um, how college curriculums and colleges are actually accredited. The accreditation system moves so slow that it's virtually impossible for you to change your curriculum. Right. I mean, if AI is changing the whole platform and how we engage and think and innovate and write and everything we do every six months, it's going to a new level. And yeah, our system isn't built for that. No. So Singularity University was started by a, with an $8 billion grant from a um, tech company. But they chose not to be accredited because it just, it, it's obsolete before you even get started. So, but they have some of the top programs in the, in the world and their students at all levels are just yeah. doing amazing work, but it's based on solving real problems and learning real skill sets and, you know, proximity to the top inventors in the world when, you know, kids can interact or interrelate with um, some of these brilliant minds. And they're just, they're down to earth, real people that have great stories. Yeah. That's yeah. All. It's, there's a, there's, there's change is it's already here. Um, there's the options I think are going to be endless in another decade. And people will choose what works best for them, whether it's from a financial perspective, from a um, what type of learner they are. I think we're already seeing that divergence in how how kids learn. Um, and you know, and I think technology, you know, it, like you said, there's light in the dark with technology because I still believe so many of our issues. There's a human component that we we dare to lose if we don't continue to bring people together uh, and develop relationships and understand how to, how, you know, to interact with human beings and understand uh, people's backgrounds and, and be, you know, have the empathy, uh, the ability to learn empathy. And so um, I think it's a, it's a mixed bag. It's, it's a, it's the uncertainty of everything feels really big to me right now. Um, and, you know, I think, I think that we can't wait. We, we also can't sit back and wait as universities or as college communities. We, ha we have to, like, to your point, we have to start having these conversations, building the relationships. So when the opportunities present themselves, we have the relationships in place to, to go after funding or to, to create, you know, we have the ecosystem built that's ready for these uh, big shifts. Yeah, I, I was talking to the dean of the College of Education at Iowa this morning about, you know, how to do this and the challenges. And it's not just in education, it's in medicine and everywhere that uh, the amount of work it takes to hire someone and the democratic processes that they go through and the dysfunction and the resistance from people at all ranks within the university they're just getting overwhelmed and mm -hmm. we know what the pandemic did to physicians and nurses i mean a lot of them just left because yeah. the, the pressure so one of the things i suggested is you know we could take students 
and we could look at everything that you do that's kind of repetitive and task-oriented, and we could figure out how to use artificial intelligence to take all that work off your plate. So if you could take 75% of the work that you did off your plate, then would you have time to sit back and ask the question, well, what if we re reimagined education? Content, world-class content is going to be available. Mm -hmm. I mean, we have a teacher shortage at some level. We have a crisis in rural America, doctor staffing. Absolutely. But just imagine what's the role of a classroom and what's the role of a teacher in the future when you, you'll be able to get amazing content in the metaverse where you're in Jurassic Park learning biology and you're touching and feeling things and smelling things and, and your avatar in another world, yeah. which is pretty exciting. But what are you going to do to develop these human connections? Um, and I think education plays a big piece in that. What happens in the classroom brings back, it should bring back what, when we were youngsters, going out and playing baseball or football or running around in the woods, you learned how to communicate and how to interact with other kids and you work things out. Now, kids are so overbooked that their parents are there almost making every decision for them. And if there's any kind of conflict or kerfluffle, they don't get work it out. So it's, you know, the emotional intelligence and the empathy somewhere, somehow we've got to teach kids. I mean, this part of being human. Right. Yeah. And that's I mean, I think, think that's the, the biggest thing. Yeah. Yeah. Because the, the, the challenge is that they will be, well, I mean, they're already working on these young people. The things they see as big, uh, audacious, difficult um, areas that they, they know will need to be solved, whether it's climate change or, you know, or education itself. I mean, they, the kids, the conversations I've had with young people, and I have three of, of our own that talk about these things, they're, they're, there's a real sense of urgency on their part that these, that they get working on these problems. And I actually stopped asking kids, what do you want to be when you grow up? I asked them what problems do you want to help solve? Because I feel like they need a, they need skill sets that they can take in to different organizations, businesses, and they need the skills to be able to solve these problems and collaboration and communication, all the, you know, the 21st century skills, um, are, are critical for that, but you have to practice them to get good at them. And so I think the role of the teacher becomes a facilitator and a coach helping kids practice these skills so that when they are out in the world and they're ready to go, they can apply them in whatever setting they're in. But it takes practice. I mean, collaboration is not easy. Adults have a hard time collaborating. <laughs> so the younger we teach that skill set, um, the better we'll all be because collaboration to me is absolutely the way forward. It's the only way to solve complex problems. Well, you're absolutely right, Kate. And I think about the industrial age and the evolution of hierarchical command and control organizations. And we're going through this 25,000 year cycle where we're kind of coming out of the era of Pisces and moving into Aquarius. But mm -hmm. 
this, this will probably freak a few people out, but the, the organizational structures that have created the polarization and the mess that we're in today are going to fade and be replaced by new forms of organizations. And the, the beautiful thing about strategic doing and some of these other thought processes, um, you've got innovation, you've got technology, then you've what I'll call culture. And our society is so ingrained in these programs of command and control. I mean, most academics probably have a little of that. You know, they have their grants and they have their little fiefdoms and they don't want to be told what to do. But, you know, NSF and NIH might say, here are the massive problems we want to solve. So how are you guys going to work together to solve them fast because we're not going to just fund these things for t 10 years. I mean, 10 years, we can solve the biggest problems that humanity faces in 10 years. And I think what's, what becomes important and what can differentiate universities is creating an environment where you, you teach these young people the, the tools and what's possible, then you give them a chance to create their canvas what's their massive transformational purpose in life going to be then you know what are two or three moonshots that they can work on um in these these open communities that come together around these shared passions to solve these problems yeah. um i mean it has to start with digital i mean you have to start with a digital platform um but at the end of the day you end up in where you've demonetized and dematerialized and democratized these technologies. So just imagine if you have a solution that impacts a billion people or five billion people, but you can raise capital today easier than ever, but you've got to have a concrete idea and you've got to use new forms of thoughts and organizations mm -hmm. and collaborations. So I think that's something that universities can start instilling. They've got to install some hope in young people. Right. I mean, so many people say, I don't want to have kids. I don't want to do this. Mm -hmm. There's just no hope for the human race. Well, that's the scarcity side of it. There's a huge abundance side to life. And that's what Peter Diamandis is, is great at. He wrote a, a book called Bold. He wrote a book called Abundance, but he's also co-founded Singularity University and the X Prize. And they're raising private funds up to a $100 million to fund solving these, these problems. Yeah. Yeah, I like to, I mean, I believe entrepreneurial skills need to be taught from preschool on. I mean, you know, and there's, there's so many ways to do that, um, to integrate it into our curriculum and help kids um, think outside the box, uh, be able to take an idea and, you know, take it, see it to fruition. Um, we, we started a design dash where we brought high schoolers together for a startup day. Uh -huh. Like you do with the, you know, college kids do a startup weekend. Well, we did it in one day and watching these young people learn, you know, the business model ca canvas, understand customer discovery, head out on the ped mall, talk to people walking by about their idea, get feedback, and then, you know, pitch at the end of the day, we'd have a pitch competition. It's, it's six hours, and in six hours, they looked at the world completely differently. The feedback was amazing. Um, 
they felt more in control a little bit of like, maybe I can do something. If I think that's a problem, maybe my idea might work. And some of them take their ideas and keep working on them. But we have to inspire kids to be problem solvers. And to do that, they have to practice that skill. They have to be kind of turned loose and allowed with, with these skills to, to practice solving problems because that's what our world will require. That's how they'll be successful. I also really believe we have to set them up for success. And we're entering a, an era where there's not one right answer anymore. And so we can't, we can't train them in a traditional system and then turn them loose into the workforce where there's multiple answers and there's complex problems, but they don't have the skills to, to manage it. And that's where anxiety and other things come in because they don't feel equipped for the, for the world. And so um, I, I think that's where so much of this early education is, is going to, as that transforms, you know, it needs to happen at the K-12 level, but also at the college level. It's, it's just got to be integrated. Yeah, I mean, it's not only the um, kindergarten through college, it's also the whole education system, the teachers. But we've already had, what, 120 school shootings this year in the first three months of the year? Yeah. I mean, you annualize that, and it's pretty sad. And politicians are polarized. No one seems to want to address the issue, at least in a concrete way, of how you limit guns getting in the kids' hands. Yeah. And I think I was talking to some moms this morning. Our kids are being traumatized every day. They have, they're afraid every day going to school. And I look back and if you think about that for us, that was not the case. We never had a fear in the world, Kate. No, (laughs) like maybe lunch would be different than I thought it was going to be. I mean, that's the biggest like shakeup that happened. And so we we are creating, by not acting and not taking responsibility for protecting the most vulnerable of our population, we are creating these, this trauma and re-traumatizing, you know, everyone, but especially our young people every day. And I just, I don't know what that's going to look like for them I mean, when you're living in trauma, we know it lives in the body. We know it affects your mind and your body. And, and we know the levels of anxiety and depression that kids have. It's, it's the, the numbers are staggering post-COVID. And so on top of it, they worry about these things every day. They worry about, they worry about climate. You know, we're, we're seeing, you know, what, 20 tornadoes in one 24-hour period in the South. Um, that's gonna, they, there was news today that those are going to continue because of these high-level um, temperature bands or something. So these are, these things are really happening. Kids are, kids are smart. They see that and they recognize that it impacts them and will for, you know, their entire lives. And I just worry that we're, we are really, it is, it is not a hard issue in my, in my opinion, but by it, by not acting and by, by thinking that we can somehow rationalize our way out of this, um, we're going to end up with a whole generation of traumatized people. Um, and I'm not sure what that's going to look like in the workplace or in our communities. Um, but I, it's not good. No, I mean, trauma leads to dysfunction. It leads to withdrawal. It leads to less human connection. I mean, human connection 
you brought it up, empathy. I mean, it has to start with a heart connection where you have some compassion and understanding for the other person. But it's not limited to just kids. It's limited to everyone at all. It seems to be missing in some areas right now that is right. really, really problematic. Yeah. Well, Andrew Yang was talking last week about what happens when humans work a day a week. And what happens if the, the concentration moves into a few trillionaires who control most of the, the power and the wealth in the world? But, you know, there's so much abundance. We can provide a universal minimum wage for everybody on the planet and the role of humans and how we engage changes. But that's certainly not going to happen with a two-party system. Um, and I was at a TED Talk in New York City last year with a gentleman that gave a talk on Gov 3.0. And his mindset is that not too many years, and I mean, I think it's less than a decade or so away, where blockchain um, and distributed policy comes into the world, where um, these nation states and these tyrants and these dictators don't necessarily determine anything. It's you've got humanity determining policy and what happens at a larger level. Now, that's, that's kind of out there, but just think about what if. What if there was a universal awareness, kind of yeah. collective consciousness that set public policy and these, these politicians? It's, it's not about solving anything. It's about making no decisions and creating anxiety and frustration. I mean, there's a few good people out there, but you know, Dan Clay tells me this morning that you know they're dealing with books that parents want to take off the shelf in libraries. I mean, this is getting crazy where the dysfunction in society is I mean, it's spiraling spiraling out of control. But you know, someone and that someone is probably the young people need to step up and say, We're done. Yeah. But somehow we have to give them the tools and the hope that their massive transformational purposes and their moonshots can change the world. And if they come together in open communities, they can solve any problem. Right. There, there's, there's leverage and power and, and mass. So any one voice isn't going to solve the problems of the world. But when you get millions of voices coming together with a passion to solve these problems, we can give them the tools but we've got to give them the hope. Yeah. And I think, I think that's challenging right now. I think there's a sense that for young people, they, they know there's not action being taken on gun, gun control and the ability of, of these weapons. And so there's a sense like, you know, where's the, where are, am I not valuable? And so I, I think as a society, you really have to look at uh, how we are taking care of our, our children because they are the future and we're letting power and greed and everything else take, take precedent over that. And this, the, you know, the countries that have acted, I mean, there's no question that it works. We know it works. We're just not bold enough and brave enough 
to do it right now. Uh, and we've got, we've got a lot of people in the way. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's unfortunate. I mean, the NRA, they could take a little different point of view. I don't think anyone's arguing that no one should have guns, but no. it's, you know, how do you get guns and how do you make sure we keep them out of the hands of kids? So why don't they just step up and start collaborating with society to solve these problems? Instead, it's just no, no, no regulations, no restrictions, no nothing. And we're just going to continue to turn our head the other way. And at some point, there'll be enough voters where they just throw them all out. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, don't, I mean, I hope. Someone's got to take action. <laughs> I know. I know. Um, yeah, it's, we're, we're living in very interesting times. And, you know, I think historically, it's, there's just this whole sense of fear uh, when you look at these laws being passed limiting the rights of, of people. And uh, this grasp at control, really, I think. And so it's, it's a, it's, we're in a, I, I, I hope that it's a pendulum, you know, has swung so high, but um, it's going to require people to, to step up and, and, uh, and be louder and participate and uh, more people running for office that, that, uh, that are looking at these, these problems from a, from a human perspective, because it's taking a toll. Right. Well, that's certainly interesting times, Kate. And I'm thinking about now that I'm going to live to 150 and I'm going to be yeah. <laughs> doing it 135, my mountain biking and everything else, that uh, there's plenty of, plenty of time to inspire the young people to create hope um, for a better tomorrow. So the switching gears a little bit. So you've got a, a new gig going on where you're coaching and mentoring. What, do you, what are you focused on? Well, I really am focusing in on this idea of authenticity and well-being. I work with individuals, obviously. Um, I've had my own kind of career shifts, and I work with people that are looking to make transitions and um, take on new, uh, you know, new paths. Um, I work with organizations who are looking to innovate. Um, that's kind of where the strategic doing comes in and, and helping with that tool to help. Um, because I really think organizations need to understand what makes them authentic, what makes them unique, so that they can innovate in a way that makes them relevant for the future, um, that engages their workforce, that um, uses the potential that their people have. And so um, I love doing, you know, retreats around that. Um, and then I'm doing the community work uh, with Project Better Together. And that was something that I was part of in my role as CEO at ICAD. And we came together creating a vision for our county uh, it was a, it's a seven-year vision for 2030, um, looking, and we engaged the community. We used a futurist. We used Rebecca Ryan, who's an amazing futurist, to really look at the trends and the data from both a national, state, and local level and say, what trends are we ready for? And, and what trends do we really need to hone in on? Because if we don't get a handle on them, um, the result isn't, isn't going to be good for our community. And so we're focused in on things um, like championing the natural environment, um, an inclusive economic development plan, 
is part of this. Re Reimagining our social services for the future. What would that look like? One of our early projects is uh, 3D printing of uh, multifamily uh, homes. Um, it will, we don't know if it'll be the first or second in North America, but building a multifamily unit. And um, that's with the support of the city of Iowa City. And so we're, we're using this vision to, to help inspire um, our community to think of ideas, projects, things they can do in these realms to move our community forward. And I think the, I'm a psychology, uh, I was a psychology major, and I think there's a lot of psychology in things right now on, on how people are doing. To your point, do they have hope? What is their, 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 what are they passionate about? And how do you leverage people's passions in your communities, in your organizations, to build new things and to create new ideas? Because the, the power of that, those are the places people are gonna wanna live. They're the communities people want to be part of. They're the companies where people stay because they feel engaged and heard and valued. So I think the, the well-being of everything, that's my big focus, is just helping create well-being in all those arenas. So what's the scope of the community that you're engaged with in these dialogues? Well, we're, the vision is for all of Johnson County, Iowa. So it's the entire county. So um, but we have project teams under all the pillars that are working. We have some, we have pillar leads and then, um, but it's really everyone's vision. So we have some companies that have taken it and used elements in their own strategic plan. The cities have kind of adopted the tenants in their strategic plans. It's designed to really be a North star for all of us. Right. And it's like no one owns it and everyone owns it. And, um, it's about trying things, experimenting. Um, not being afraid to uh, to take a chance, to your point, to to take some risk, and um, and I think we've seen some really good early success. Um, people, you know, raise their hand every week. They'll email or call and say, "I want to be part of this," or "I have an idea." And our job, Katie Gerlach's uh, directing it. I'm working alongside her, and she's amazing. It's just to connect good people with good ideas. And then how can we support you in making it happen? So there's a youth leadership program. That the CL, uh, CLP group is starting to try to help youth leaders. Um, the, the housing work, like I said, the nonprofit work, child care, looking at preschool. How do we make that more accessible? They're, we're talking transportation. What's, how do we regionally come together around transportation? Um, what's that look like? Um, that's, you know, that's changed even in the last couple of years of what's, what's going to make sense for our region. So um, they're big, they're big issues, they're big problems, but leveraging the assets we have in the area, uh, we're, we're excited the, of the progress that's being made. What are some of the gaps you need some help feel, um, filling on your team? Is there uh -huh. any areas that Well, we, we started a fund at the Community Foundation. So what we want to be able to do is when there's a, a project that, that needs some funding, some startup funding, that we have a fund for that. So we'll be looking for, you know, people to invest in the work um, and, you know, really just people to get involved. And, and you can go to BT2030 um, to check out the, the work um, and raise your hand. So it's, it's human capital. It's, you know, funding, of course. Um, and then just. I think just people 
understanding what the vision is and, and what our community is working toward. Um, because part of this is creating a, a place that is, that is looking forward. And we, we started this work actually during COVID because we were responding and the business community were trying to support them during COVID. And I remember we kind of pivoted and said, at some point we're coming out of this and we need to be ready because there's a huge opportunity for us to, we've built all this good camaraderie and cooperation and collaboration during COVID. Let's not lose it. Let's leverage that into what's next. And so that's really what happened. Um, and we've got great community leaders involved that are champions of this process. And, you know, so just in any way you want to get involved, we're hoping, I'm hoping more students will get involved. We had some students on the planning team and we're not building a future for me necessarily. You might live to 150, but I'm pretty sure I won't. Um, but, but the young, we're building it for the, these next generations. And so they need to be at the table. They need to be part of this. And that's another way to really engage them in, in solving the problems of the future. How do you engage this organization to stay passionate and keep things moving forward. Do you do something like a 30-30 review for each of the teams and they come yep. back and they keep it alive and they keep yep. it? We have working teams with the idea that every 30 days they're coming back together. Um, projects kind of shoot off of those and there may be a small group working on something. But honestly, the, the best way to, that I've seen that, to keep the momentum is we have to um, acknowledge and we have to... Um, uh, we had an event in November where we gave out awards for people that are making big changes in our community that are collaborating well in these different pillars. And we're going to keep doing that. So I always say you, you celebrate and you reward what you want to see more of. So, you know, creating that buzz around what's happening and what's working. And we'll have some failures. I mean, that's part of the process, but right. um, that's okay. We also, we want to recognize uh, people for, for showing up and for trying new things. Well, fantastic, Kate. Um, yeah. I think we've covered a lot today. Yeah. It's exciting to hear about the good things that you're helping the, the community focus on. And um, we need to do more of that as humans, yeah. you know, help each other, make the world a better place. So I, I agree. Appreciate your time. I appreciate the work of my production crew. Taylor Higgins, Seth Nielsen. And if you enjoyed today's conversation, please refer it to your friends and um, listen to it on your favorite, favorite streaming service. Thank you for your time, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for joining us on the Ampex podcast. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Make sure not to miss future episodes, and please rate the show wherever you get your podcast. Thanks to our awesome production team, Lindsay Soderberg, Social and Digital Marketing. Taylor Higgins, video production, and Seth Nielsen, marketing. See you next time.